All right, welcome back to RUF. Um, it's good to see everyone back. Uh, my name is Jason Sterling, and I'm the campus minister. I know there's some new faces. Uh, and let me just take a few minutes to tell you about RUF. Some of you might be your first time uh, here. Uh, basically, we're a Christian ministry on campus, and we welcome people from any and all denominational backgrounds. We welcome people no matter where you are in your walk with Jesus, whether you're doing great or whether you're struggling uh, or whether you're not sure about this Christianity, Christianity thing and you're skeptical. You are welcome here. We uh, are glad that you're a part of our fellowship. Um, our ministry is real simple. We believe the Bible is the Word of God, that it is inspired from Him, that it is authoritative, that we are to live our lives under it uh, in what it says, and we claim to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's, in a nutshell, RUF. And what do we do every week? Well, we get together here, and this is what we call our large group meeting, our weekly meeting. Uh, we eight at 8 o'clock every Monday night here in the Flag Colonnade. We'll open up God's Word and we'll uh, hear God speak to us through it. Uh, then we also have small groups and you can sign up uh, on the wall. Encourage you to get involved in those. That's a smaller uh, community where we can discuss and pray and fellowship with one another. Uh, if you are a freshman, the freshman Bible study is going to continue to meet. Uh, at our home this semester, and so directions are on our website. The website is on your handout uh, that has the outline and announcements on it. Uh, go there, and please come on Wednesday night at 8 o'clock. We'll have fun, we'll have cookies, and we'll dig into the Word. Um, also, if you are new and you want to get on our email list... Uh, and want to keep up to date on what's going on, we would love for you to do that and just fill out a card on the table on your way out. Uh, there's pens there, and you can leave that, and we can have uh, your email address and know how to get a hold of you, and we'll uh, keep you up to date on what's going on in the life of RUF. Also, 24. I know there's a lot of Lost fans, and I'm okay with Lost, but I love the show 24. And if you are a 24 fan, I know 24 is like 20 minutes in right now. We've got DVR. That was a Christmas present for me. And so if you want to watch 24 and you're a 24 fan, we have 24 parties at 10 o'clock every Monday night at our house. If you want to come, you're welcome to. If you don't like 24 or you have no clue what it is, forget that I even said that. <laughs> Lost in the food court. Okay, good. <laughs> That's, when is Lost Wednesdays? Wednesday nights. All right. Um, this semester, basically, most of you know, if you don't, my wife is due really in the next four or five weeks with our third child, another girl. Um, and so this semester, I've decided to take some liberty. We're not going like through a, a book of the Bible like we normally do. I'm going to preach on the passages that I want to preach on. <laughs> uh, the, a lot of passages that I've always wanted to do and study and I never have I've been able to for one reason or another. And so tonight we're going to look at John chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to John 2. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses. Uh, thank you for bearing with me on the announcements. 
um, we have always a lot at the beginning of the semester. Anybody office? I mentioned 24 loss. Anybody fan of the office? Okay. If you're not, it's a you know a good a good show as well. But if you have watched the office, there is this one episode uh, when Phyllis gets married. And if you have seen this episode, uh, it goes something like this. Phyllis is getting married. Michael Scott is her boss. And she decides, how can I get six weeks off for my honeymoon? And the best way to do that, she figures, is to have her boss, Michael Scott, in the wedding. And so she says she wants to give him this real minimal role, okay? Her father is in a wheelchair. And so... Michael, she puts him in charge of pushing him down the aisle. Michael Scott thinks this is the biggest role in the world. And he thinks that the attention and really that he is the center of this wedding. And and he thinks that he is kind of giving uh, Phyllis away in a sense along with her father. Because he is walking her down, her father down the aisle, pushing him down the aisle. Well, if you've seen the episode, it gets about halfway down the aisle. Her father stops the, the wheelchair, gets up out of the wheelchair, and walks Phyllis the rest of the way down the aisle. The last couple of steps. And so, you know, automatically, if a guy gets up out of the wheelchair, everybody's like, <gasps> and watching her father. And so all eyes are on him. Michael Scott is ticked. Because the attention's not on him. And so he goes and makes this wedding the most awkward thing ever. He stands up with the rest of the attendants, the groomsmen, and they're giving their vows. They're saying their vows to one another. And right in the middle of it, he decides that he's going to be the officiator or officiate the wedding. And he busts in and presents the couple, if you remember seeing it. I now present to you, Mr. and Mrs., and everybody's like, who is this freak? So he ends up doing it again. He actually just takes over the role of the preacher and decides to present the couple. He's not done. Goes to the reception, stands up to toast Phyllis, and if you've seen it, says the most inappropriate, awkward things that you can imagine. Finally, they come and have to escort him off the stage and kick him out of the wedding, permanently banning him from the reception. Michael Scott made Phyllis's wedding the most uncomfortable, awkward thing in the world. He totally ruined it. Tonight we're looking at another wedding. In the passage before us, Jesus is at this wedding. But instead of making it awkward and uncomfortable, Jesus actually breathes life into this dying wedding. In fact, as we read the story, and as we talk about it, you're going to see that Jesus is really the life of the party. Please stand as I read. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. 
His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water and fill them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word that has application for all, all of life. Tonight, we need you, Holy Spirit, to enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we can see Jesus more clearly, so that we can have a more accurate and better view of what the Christian life is really all about. I pray that you would apply this passage to our hearts and help us to see Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Alright, the book of John... Really, the whole purpose of the book is John is trying in his gospel to show us Jesus. And through showing us who Jesus is, he is hoping that we would put our trust in him, believe in him, so that we could find true life, true everlasting life. And to accomplish this, John puts before us several miracles, several pictures uh, to show us who Christ is. The first one is found here in chapter 2. Right off the bat, he starts his gospel, and the first miracle is Jesus turns water into wine at this wedding in Cana. Jesus has been invited to this wedding. I don't know whether it was a friend of his, whether it was a friend of the family, but he's obviously in support of it. He comes to the wedding. We know that his mother is there as well, in that she seems, from reading the passage, to have some significant role in the wedding. Some sort of responsibility uh, at the wedding. And you can just see in your mind's eye, as we read, kind of getting into the story, uh, Jesus probably having a good time, the party is uh, alive and well, Jesus is probably playing with young children, talking with friends, sipping on wine, dancing, as well, and then all of a sudden, things start to take a turn for the worst. They run out of wine. Mary goes up to Jesus, and she tells Jesus about it, because this is bad news for the party. It's horrible, because the groom could suffer, and the bride and the groom could suffer horrible embarrassment. If they ran out of wine. In fact, sources say that the bride's family could actually sue the groom's family for something like this. 
This was serious. Weddings were a huge deal back then. They kind of, it was a party that went on for several days with a carnival, you know, a celebration type atmosphere. They were huge. The whole town centered around them. And so this was a huge deal. And Mary goes to Jesus because she knows that Jesus can do something about it. And she tells them, she goes and tells them that they run out of wine, and then she tells the servants, do whatever he says. Now, when we read it, we might think that Mary's just being like a nagging mother. (laughs) Going up to bug Jesus with this, like, come on, do something. It really is not that. She is actually demonstrating faith. Because she knows who Jesus is, and she knows that he can do something about it. Jesus decides to do something. He decides to take these six huge jars that are filled with water, and he says, fill them to the brim. And then he tells them to draw some out of it and take it to the master of the feast. He takes it to the master of the feast. And he says it's the best wine that he's ever tasted. Now think about this. Jesus turns water into wine. And it says there were 25 to 30 gallons. We're talking about 150 gallons of wine. And not just any wine, the best wine. That is cool. Think about it. Jesus is the life of the party. You know, we we read and we hear in in the church, it's often presented Jesus as this weird, awkward, odd dude uh, in the Bible. Jesus is cool. If we look here, he's, he's the hit of the party. He saves this party. And they don't just, you know, they bring out... You know, normally they would bring, save the best wine. They would bring it out first and use the cheapo stuff, the $2 bottles of wine for the end when people are too tipsy and drunk to know the difference. Jesus saves the party and he did so with style. He was the life of this party. I don't know about you, but think about this. I think it's strange that he, John starts with this. John is trying to show us and get us to believe in Jesus so that we can find life. And if, that, if, I, if it were me, I would start with a different miracle. Wouldn't you? I mean, something a little more powerful. Not that this is not powerful, but like, what about Jesus walking on water? You know, Jesus calming the storm. You would think he would do that, but John doesn't. He starts with this, and it's very significant. The first sign or miracle is significant. Right at the beginning, John wants us to notice and see something about Jesus. He wants to show us who Jesus is and what he came to do. He wants to show us what Christianity is all about. And he does so through John 2. Look with me. The first thing we're going to look at is who Jesus is. Look at verses 8 and 9. Jesus tells the servants to go take the jars, fill them to the brim, and then take it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast was basically the master of ceremonies. He was the hired gun, the hired life of the party, hired to keep it going, not kind of like the wedding planner. 
Somebody to make sure that everything is ticking and that people are having a good time. He was the hired life of the party, making sure it didn't die down. And if it died down, it was on him. The party starts to die. You've you've read it with me. It starts to die and it looks like this guy is going to crash and burn. And then Jesus saves the party. He turns water into wine and saves this guy's rear end. And Jesus right here reveals himself as the true master of the feast. The true wine giver. Jesus is saying, I'm the life of the party. I came, yes, I came to suffer and I came to die. But I also am the Lord of the feast. You know, we just inaugurated a president. Inaugurations, I love them for all the pomp and circumstance. And if you know, if you watch any of the inauguration, you know that it's what? It's a huge party. It goes on for days. There's parades, there's dinners. They party all into the night. In fact, I remember reading that the Obamas hit their last party. You know what time? 2.30 in the morning is when they went to their last inaugural ball. As big as that event was, and you can imagine the millions that were spent on the inauguration. I don't even know, I heard the figure, but I can't remember. But it is huge. Jesus is saying here, as big as that event is and that party is, it is nothing compared to what I have come to bring into this world and into your life. Jesus is saying, I've come to bring festival joy into the world and into our lives. In the Bible, wine is associated with blessing and with joy. Isaiah 25 says this, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. Jesus says, I am that wine. I am who the prophets have prophesied about, and I have come to bring joy. Okay, here's some application points. Lots of you have grown up in the church, and some of you have a bad taste in your mouth about Christianity. In fact, you have come to college to say, I'm getting out of the straitjacket that Christianity has put me in, and I'm going to let my hair down, and I'm going to enjoy myself for once. I'm going to have the most wonderful time. The time of my life. Why? Why do you think this? Because you have been taught, or you think, or have heard that Christianity is about keeping your nose clean, and sucking it up, and gritting your teeth, and just bearing it. And it's nothing but duty. You've been taught and you've heard people say, you better get your act together so you don't go to hell. You better start living. Better start living the faith. Is that your view of Christianity? Is that your view of what Jesus came to do? And who He is? If so, it's not what we see here. Jesus says, I am about joy. 
I am about life. Some of you, your Christian life could be described. You're walking with Jesus. You love Jesus. But you would say and describe your Christian life as lifeless. No joy. Boring. Miserable. How do I know? Because I've seen your faces. You look miserable. And Jesus says, if you're miserable, and I'm not saying there's not suffering in the Christian life. Yes, there's suffering. Yes, we have bad days. But if the most of your Christian life is marked by lifeless, joyless misery, Jesus is saying here, you've missed it. You have missed something. Because I have come to bring joy, celebration to the world and to your life. Others of you are saying, I really want to live for Jesus. I really want to sell out. But there's a part of you that's scared to do that because you think that if you really sell out, then you're going to end up poor, miserable, dull, you name it, depressed. Jesus is saying here, friends, in this passage, you want to live? Come to me. There is no life outside of me. I am the life. I'm the Lord of the feast. I offer the best wine. Will you come and drink? St. Augustine says that we were made for God and that our souls are restless until we find rest in Him. He's basically saying, which is something that's theologically true in that quote, that all of us have this God-shaped vacuum in the core of our soul and in our being And that if God is not the center of our soul and the center of our being, then we're going to look all over the world for other idols and other God replacements to stuff into it to make ourselves feel alive. But those idols will leave us empty every single time. Every time we go running after idols... Go running after something other than Jesus. We are really looking for God. Anytime we go looking and running after idols, we're really searching for God. G.K. Chesterton said this. He said, every time a man knocks on the door of a prostitute, he's looking for God. Every time someone clicks on internet pornography... They're looking for God. Every time the bulimic throws up, they are looking for God. Every time the anorexic deprives herself or himself of food, they're looking for God. Every time the alcoholic gets drunk, they're looking for God. Every time the boyfriend or girlfriend sleeps with their partner, they are looking for For God. And Jesus is saying, stop. Stop chasing life everywhere else. Because I am the only true wine giver. I am the life. 
Jesus says, come to me. So first of all, we see who is Jesus? He's the Lord of the feast. The giver of the best wine. And we have to look nowhere else. Secondly, we see what Jesus came to do. Look at verses 3 and 4. Jesus' mother comes and she says, We're out of wine! And then this response is shocking. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I don't know about you, but I feel, I feel like stepping in and saying, Jesus, that's no way to talk to your mother. That sounds at first glance very rude. It's not rude. When he says, woman, that response was a response of polite, an expression of polite distance. Here's the picture. That response indicates, polite distance, indicates that there was something else going on in Jesus' mind. He was distant. He was in another world. He was thinking about something else. What was he thinking about? He was thinking about his wedding. Think about it. It makes sense. When you go to weddings, what do you think about? You think about your wedding. Susie and I went to a wedding a few weeks ago at a church here in Birmingham. And what did I do? It took me back to the day of our wedding. Susie thought about our wedding too. It's just a natural thing. And you do the exact same thing. When you're at a wedding, this is what you do. Who will it be? When will it be? Will it be soon? Will it be far off? What what is my last name going to sound like? Is it going to go with mine? If not, we're going to rule out all the guys. I'm not going to date them if they have bad last names. You think about your dress. You think about your china. You think about your home. Where you will live. Who you will marry. Guys, we all know what you're thinking about. The honeymoon. That's it. But also, for some of you, when you go to weddings, it's sad. You get sad because either all of your friends are getting married, or your friends are dating someone and you're not, and so it's a reminder to you of your loneliness. And so they make you sad. Here's my point. Weddings affect us. And they are intended to. You see, you should think of your wedding when you're at the wedding of someone else. That is what Jesus was doing. He was thinking about His wedding. You know, this idea, this marriage imagery, if you know and have read some of the Bible, you've probably come across this idea of the bride and the bridegroom. You know, we see it all throughout the Bible. Jesus is the bridegroom. See this picture. And then His church is the bride. We, His people. You are His bride. And in Revelation is when it's all going to culminate and the wedding will take place and there'll be what? A huge wedding feast. And it will be filled with celebration and filled with tremendous joy. Every other wedding is a foretaste of that one. 
Every bride and groom pictures that one. That's why marriage, you often hear, is such a great picture of the gospel. Because it's the picture of the gospel that we see represented in the scriptures. You see, Jesus, he's thinking about his wedding. But you know what else he's thinking about? Jesus is thinking about what it's going to cost to be with his bride. That's why he is so distant. He's thinking about what it's going to cost for him to bring wine, the best wine, to his people and to his wedding. Do you know what Jesus is thinking about when he thinks about his wedding? Death. He's thinking about the fact that his wedding day will only come when he dies for his bride. How do we know? Look at verse 4, if you're still not convinced. He says to Mary, my hour has not yet come. This phrase, my hour, if you look and do a study of that through the Gospel of John, you see that every time it's mentioned, it refers to the day when Jesus will shine in all His glory. When He will be raised on the cross and crucified for you and for me. My hour refers to his death. Jesus is thinking about what it's going to cost. The fact that he's going to have to die to be with his bride. It becomes clear in verse 6. The text tells us that the jars of water were used for ceremonial washing. In order for... Back then, for you to enter into the temple, into God's presence, you had to wash. Ceremonially, you had to be cleansed. And so that whole fact that we need cleansing, and that these were pure for purification, tells us what? Presupposes what? That something's wrong with us. That there's something about us that's twisted, that's crooked, that's distorted, that needs cleansing in some way. We are defiled. And don't we all know that to some degree? Deep down in your heart, when you're laying awake at two in the morning, don't you feel it? That something's not right in your soul? Don't you feel the guilt and the shame and the hurt and the brokenness in your life? Mark Twain says this. says it this way. Our sense of failure creates a guilty conscience. This is a great line. And the guilty conscience is like a hair in your mouth. (laughs) You know what it's like. You've had a hair in your mouth. Jesus, friends, has come to do something about the hair in your mouth. You know that sense of guilt and shame and sin that you feel? Jesus has come to bring healing To bring transformation and forgiveness. Something only He can bring. The message of John 2 is that Jesus is the wine giver. And He has come to deliver you from your sin, from your shame, from your guilt and your brokenness. The wedding cost is so great for Him. And you know why it's great? Because we are great sinners that desperately need 
someone to come and to pay the price that we could not pay. You see, if we're ever going to the feast, the great feast, when Jesus returns, and if we are going to be a people that drink the cup of joy, that drink the best wine, it is only because Jesus has already gone before us and drink the cup of eternal justice and eternal sorrow on our behalf. He came to give of His blood so that we could have the best wine. Y'all might be familiar with this story. It was fascinating. A few weeks ago, the Sully Sullenworth, I think it was, that name sound familiar, landed this plane in an emergency landing in the Hudson River. Who heard of that story? It was wild to watch this scene unfold. And he is being acclaimed as a hero. And you know what? He is a hero. But friends, our bride, bridegroom, Jesus Christ, is the hero of all heroes. And he is coming back to get his bride, you and me. He's coming back to rescue her. And to rescue you and me. And so if Sully impresses you, look to Jesus. Gaze at Jesus because there is no rescue, my friends, that is comparable to His. This is the gospel for you. The gospel for you is this, that even though we are full of sin, full of shame, full of brokenness. God sent His Son, the Bridegroom, to come down, despite all of that, and to love us, and to die for us, and to protect us. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for the good news of the gospel. We don't come claiming to have it all together. We come tonight thanking you, adoring you, honoring you, worshiping you for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. We thank you so much for sending Jesus the bridegroom to rescue us. When we were without hope. While we were still sinners, Christ died. Father, I pray that we would leave here tonight rejoicing. Full of joy. Because you have given us life. That is who you are. You're the Lord of the feast. May our lives reflect it. And may our singing reflect it. Now, as we come and worship you in song. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.